Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And so we kind of gave a brief overview um, about the, the question that we were trying to answer was, does God abandon us? Right. And of course, the answer was an emphatic. No. no. Right. And so if you're filling in the blanks, the number one, we said God doesn't abandon us. But instead, God is trustworthy. Right. God is trustworthy. And because of that, we can take refuge in him. Second, we said that God was good. Right. God is good. And because of that, we can claim him. Because of that, we have a personal relationship with him. Third, we said God is sufficient. God is sufficient. And because of that, you don't have to seek relationship or validation anywhere else. Because of that, you don't have to lack in support or need. Because of that, there is favor and excess in God. We said that God was not only sufficient, but God is intentional. And because of that, there is merit to his advice. Because of that, he's a credible counteraction to the conversations that we have with our souls at night. God is not just intentional, but God is ever before us. Because of this, we can always be defended, protected, and unshaken. We talked about Jehovah Nisi, the banner who goes before us. Right? Whenever the, the world says that we are unloved, my God says that I am loved evermore. Right? Whenever, the, whenever the enemy says that I am unforgiven, God said, I love you so much, I sent my son to die on the cross and rise again for your sin. Right? That banner goes before us and tells the truth against what the enemy, the accuser of the brethren, says to us. And because of that, we have joy and we have security. And last in that section, we said that God is not the leaving kind. And because of that, we're never uh, abandoned into uh, destruction. And because of that, God exchanges torment and emptiness for pleasures and fullness in him. So is God the leaving kind? No. Does God abandon us? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, he does the exact opposite. And for that, the whole church can say, Amen. Amen. All right. So last week we spent some time just talking about abandonment, right? We talked about attachment styles. Uh, we talked about how to overcome those different things, how to work toward a more secure attachment. And this week we are moving into codependency, one of my absolute favorite topics to talk about ever, right? I might say the same thing next week, but just humor me for this week, okay? All right. I love it. So we're going to jump into codependency today. So let's define it. Codependency is a relational pattern characterized by an excessive reliance on another person for emotional, psychological, or even physical needs. It is often involves an unhealthy and dysfunctional dependency on another individual, typically a partner, family member, or friend. Codependent individuals tend to prioritize the needs, desires, and well-being of others over their own, often to their detriment. Often to their detriment, right? And so uh, we're going to talk about the codependency, and codependency is super tricky 
because codependency at its, on its surface, and we'll talk about this a little later, but codependency on its surface looks like full-blown just caring. I love you. I'm going to take care of you. And it's true. I don't believe that, there is, that that's not the case. But what's also true is that it's also a scratch my back, scratch yours. The difficult part in codependency is that the individual doesn't know they're scratching your back, right? It, it doesn't know what's going on. What do you mean by that? Is that what's happening in these codependent moments is that you are getting your needs met through that person without them offering you their, the needs. Does that make sense? So how does that look like practically? That looks like me choosing to love you and, and, and treat you well and offer you security. And then you may say, well, Pastor X, what's the problem? The problem becomes if I'm doing that as a projection of my own insecurity and the lack of love and security that I've had in my own life. So what happens then is I'm not taking care of you. I'm taking care of who? Me. It's, it, that's what projection looks like. Does that make sense? Is that, and that's why it's hard to detect from the outside unless you begin to see some of the unhealthy characteristics that we're going to talk about in a second. So let's jump into some components of codependency. What are some components of codependency? Now, I told you guys, if you were going to just use your bifold, you messed up because you should have a what? A notebook. And I'm going to tell you what, baby, today is going to be one of those days where your bifold is not going to be enough. All right? Y'all, number one, know I talk way too much anyway, right? But today I have a lot of information to give, so I'll try to take my time. And again, if we go over the 7.30 mark, we love you, thank you for coming, and don't feel bad about having to step out. But I plan to finish the whole lesson today, okay? Components of codependency. Number one, filling voids. What does it look like for someone to be codependent? Filling voids. This is using people to replace others instead of loving them for them. So if someone has an issue with a specific person. So we talked about that uh, partners and family members and friends have a tendency to be the people who, uh, who this shows up for the most. Right? So let's say I had an ex-girlfriend, right? And I had an ex-girlfriend that I did not completely get over all of the issues that came with that ex-girlfriend. And I'm still hurting from that relationship with that ex-girlfriend. I'm still struggling to get closure from that. I'm still struggling to feel loved from that. I'm still struggling to feel connected from that. And so what may happen is, since I did not settle that with my ex-girlfriend, my new girlfriend, instead of just being the new girlfriend, will actually take the place of my old girlfriend. But what's the problem? She's not the old girlfriend. Which means that there is a wound that only the old girlfriend can fill. So if I try to use the new girlfriend to fill the void that the old girlfriend left, that's like putting a square peg in a round hole. And what's going to happen? Anyone ever tried to seal something? Where's my, um, where are my handyman at? Handyman and handy women. I'm going to put my hand down because I'm none of that. All right? <laughs> You're who I'm calling to come help me, right? But it's like trying to use the caulk to seal your bathroom tub, right? You didn't even know I knew about that, did you, right? <laughs> and you want to do that because you don't want the water to leak, right? But if you don't seal it properly, your tub might leak still, right? So what's going to happen is you might think that you're caulking that relationship. Look at that. I'm a preacher. Can you tell? Right? <laughs> you're trying to caulk that relationship 
with the new person, but it's not going to completely seal. Why? Because what's the contents of the tub belong to another. Oh, my gosh. The content of the tub belong to somebody else. So what's going to happen is they will continually not be able to fulfill your needs. Why? Because the needs that you're ascribing to them don't belong to them. They belong to another person, right? So this shows up, especially in parent-child relationships, uh-oh, right? Where you'll find people in their marriage trying to use their husband to replace the wounds of dad. He's trying to use the, the relationship with his wife to replace the wounds of mom. And what's going to happen is you are going to abuse that relationship because you're going to try to fill a void with someone that did not create the void. And it'll never work. And you'll be perpetually unsatisfied, dissatisfied, unfulfilled. And then you're going to look at them and say, you don't complete me. Wait, what? Is that my fault or yours? Is it, is, is it the fact that you're trying to use me to caulk someone else's area? Or are you actually treating me for me? So one way that you might be codependent is if you notice that when you talk to someone, your partner, a family member, a friend, and you realize that, oh, they didn't actually even do any of the things that I'm accusing them of. I'm projecting onto them the, the wounds that I had from a previous relationship or a previous family member or a previous friend. And that is going to exhaust that relationship quickly. And it won't last long. It won't go the distance. So number one, components of codependency filling voids. Number two, the savior complex. The savior complex. What is the savior complex? A savior complex refers to a psychological pattern where an individual feels an intense need to save or fix others. So this is what I was referring to in a second. Sorry, I keep checking this, y'all. And a second ago, it turned off. And so I didn't want it to do that again. All right. A savior complex refers to a psychological pattern where an individual feels an intense need to save or fix others. It includes a need, number one, a need for validation. Individuals with a savior complex may seek validation and self-worth through their acts of saving or helping others. They derive a sense of purpose and importance from being the hero or the one who can solve others' problems. It's less about saving the other person and more about saving who? Self. Uh-huh. Y'all are picking it up quickly, right? So when you're saving someone, are you saving them or are you saving you? Right? Are you saving them or are you saving you? It can be easy to mask codependency because there are elements, like we talked about, of helping others, right? And helping others is not a bad thing. But we have to be careful when, when you're looking out for them, it really means that you're looking out for who? For self. You got to be so careful about that. Components of codependency. So not just filling voids and a savior complex, but controlling behavior or enabling behavior. They may exhibit controlling behaviors, believing that they know what is best for others and attempting to dictate their actions or decisions. In some cases, they, can, this, they can't enable um, or cause someone to be dependent or, un, or display unhealthy behaviors in others. 
inadvertently perpetuating a cycle of neediness, right? You're gonna, and I, it's not uncommon to hear about something called uh, homeostasis. Anyone ever heard of homeostasis? All right, so homeostasis operates in a, a lot of places that's probably the most familiar is in people who struggle with addiction, right? You'll usually have two parties with someone who struggles with addiction. The first party might be the person that says, hey, you gotta get clean, you gotta do the right thing, I gotta get you to the place where you're doing right, and so I'm gonna hold you accountable to being right. The other half of the party are who we call the enablers, right? And the enablers are the individuals who will say, because I want peace in the household, or because I want peace in our relationships, or I don't want to fuss, or I'm tired, or I'm exhausted with the nature of these relationships, it is easier to help foster and facilitate the habit than it is to help them get it cleaned up, right? Now, enablement is not always on purpose, right? Sometimes we're tired of fighting and we just want peace. But you, the oldest statement goes, your walk walks and your talk talks, but does your walk talk like your talk talks, right? I don't want to enable, but your actions say otherwise. And sometimes we do that because we just want to have peace, right? So it's easier to help feed the habit. It's easier to help them stay in the place where they're at than it is for, to, to affect or administer change. So then when there's a threat to homeostasis, so the homeostasis refers to the natural system that exists for the family. So when someone who enables no longer enables, they become a threat to the homeostasis because they're uprooting the system that has been built by what the family has enabled, has, has put together. And so this is a difficult thing for people to break, this controlling enablement pattern, is because whenever things start getting shaken up, it takes a long time sometimes to get it reorganized, to get it restructured, uh, to get it into a, uh, to a healthy place. And someone who decides I'm not going to do X anymore can start to see a lot of dysfunction in the family because this is, what we, this is what we've always done. Why do it differently now, right? Um, but someone who is codependent, they may enable because it helps them to stay in control, right, of how the circumstances are, or they might just be outright controlling, right? They want to be able to di dictate how this looks, dictate how the relationship looks, dictate how, uh, how we connect, how we operate as a family system because it lets them know that, hey, while this is happening, and we're going to talk about it in, more about control in a second, is while this is happening, it allows me to kind of feel more, um, more kind of connected in, a, in the situation to where I don't feel like I'm at loss. Does that make sense? So I don't feel like I'm at loss. And so they may enable destructive behaviors in others, such as addiction, by taking on the responsibilities or shielding them from the, from the consequences. People who are controlling, however, have a tendency to do it for various reasons. Number one, they lack control in their personal lives, right? So if I can't control what's going on in my life, I can control what's happening in yours, right? I can control the scenario. I can control these circumstances because, again, projection is a big component of codependency. You follow me so far? And so it's important for us to make sure that when we do this, we understand that, hey, this is me being able to project what's happening in me. And so what provides me peace is being able to say that there is something that I can get my hands on that I can say I control because it helps me not feel so, uh, so far removed from the circumstances. People have a tendency to be controlling because of fear of insecu or insecurity, 
right? Um, this is that individual who has to always ask, where you at? Did you really tell me? Did you really go where you say you were going to go? Hey, you made this promise. Are you really going to hold on to it? And it's like they're wanting to kind of make sure that you're doing this thing. Why? Because they don't believe you. But they may not not believe you because you did something wrong, but because of their own fear and their own insecurity. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, perfectionism. All right. Time for honesty. Where are my perfectionists at? Raise that hand. I see y'all. I appreciate your bravery because mine, all of mine are up. I'm a huge perfectionist, right? Got to work on it a lot. Perfectionism. Whew. All right. Um, perfectionism is, is a big part. All right. I went too fast. All right. Um, perfectionism. We're going to come back to that. Past trauma is a big reason people become controlling or enabling because of their past experience. Um, and then, of course, problems with trust is a big uh, component with that as well. Either that maybe because of someone breaking that trust beforehand or just the fact that they have those insecurities and so they struggle to trust um, either way. Fourth is low self-esteem. Codependent individuals often have a poor sense of self-worth and may seek validation and approval from others. So someone who is codependent might have low self-esteem and this shows up in some other ways. First, they may, more, they may be more susceptible to self-deprecation, right? That means that they have a tendency to kind of trash themselves. And so I'll even say with my clients all the time, the last three questions that I ask on my intake questionnaire are what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, and what are your goals for therapy? And nine times out of 10, people really, really struggle with the strengths component, but then the list is a mile long for the weaknesses, right? And that's, a, and that's a component that shows where we view ourselves, um, where we spend most of our time viewing ourselves. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that um, here in a second. But they are more susceptible to self-deprecation. People with low self-esteem are more susceptible to mental, emotional, and physical abuse. Right? Oh, my gosh. We're going to talk about this in a, in a little bit uh, when we talk about passive people um, and avoiding conflict uh, allows you a lot of room to become a punching bag and a doormat. Oh, you're not going to check me on this? Okay, let's see how far I can push this. Let's see how far I can push you, right? Um, Got to be careful about that. Low self-esteem, social withdrawal or isolation, right? Social withdrawal and isolation are components of someone with low self-esteem, which will show up in someone who is codependent a lot because if they struggle with their external relationships, well, the ones that I can actually uh, hold close to me, well, I'm going to keep because I don't have many. Make sense? Low self-esteem, mental health issues. Low self-esteem is closely associated with mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, and eating disorders. Negative self-perceptions can contribute to persistent feelings of sadness, hopelessness and worthlessness. It can also lead to a, preoccup a preoccupation with body image and unhealthy relationships with food, right? And so you ever heard of the expressions, eat your feelings, right? Kind of conceptually what we're talking about there. Lack of assertiveness. We're gonna come back to that as well um, when we talk about personality styles. And then self-imposed barriers to goals and aspirations. 
Someone with low self-esteem may struggle with having healthy goals and healthy aspirations, believing that they can do it, that they can achieve this thing, that they can work that job, that they can get that certification. Um, and so that also shows how someone with, with low self-esteem can develop a codependency because they need their esteem filled by someone else, except red flag, red flag, red flag, void issue, right? You can't fill in me what I don't believe in myself. Right. It'll go. So if someone um, so if I don't believe so. OK, so let's say if I don't believe that I am attractive. Right. And then someone tells me, hey, you're a handsome dude. My tendency to believe that is going to significantly decrease because I don't believe it about myself. It is only once I establish a belief and a confidence in myself that others can now bolster me with their words. Does That make sense. You have to be that first line of defense of encouragement for yourself before someone else can encourage you and bolster you as well. Understand? All right. Okay. And so next, people-pleasing. Components of codependency, people-pleasing. They have a strong desire to please others and avoid conflict, often at the expense of their own needs and boundaries. I use this expression all the time. People-pleasing is perfectionism for relationships. People-pleasing people -pleasing is perfectionism for relationships. This will take away first your ability to view yourself as autonomous. What does that mean? Is that if I am someone who battles with codependency and I people-please in that, I will have a less, a less increased chance of being able to do what's best for me, but do what you believe is what's best for me. Make sense? Now here's the truth. Is what you believe is best for me is always what's best for me? No. That's not true. Sometimes can it be true? Yeah. My daughter wants to eat ice cream every day, but I know that's going to rot her teeth, right? And if she's going to get a stomach ache, she needs vegetables and other forms of nutrition. She eats candy every day. It's going to be bad for her. So in that instance, I may know what's best for her. But you only know what career goals are best for you. Right. You know what relationship status is good for you for where you are in the stage of life. You know, you know, a lot of those different things. And so but when you people please, you'll be less inclined to think about your needs as you need them and more about your needs as other people believe them for you. So remember, codependency shows up in friends, family and partners. Right. And so this is going to be people pleasing. I'll tell this. It's a, it's a double edged sword. And if you live by that sword, you'll die by that sword. Because if I want to do something specific and I say, Kalea, I want to do this, as long as she says yes, then I'm fine, right? Because she just supported me in it. But what if she doesn't agree? What if she said, I hate that shirt that you wear today, that 90s shirt, right? I don't like it. And if I don't have enough confidence to wear a really loud shirt like this, she may say she doesn't like it. What am I most likely going to do? Not wear it. Not wear it, right? And so I didn't do what I wanted to do because I liked it or what I thought was best for me. I did it because her perception of what was best for me and what I looked good in wearing was what drove that. It takes away my autonomy. Okay? You live by that sword, you die by that sword. Why? Because it leaves you more susceptible to abuse and mistreatment. Got to be careful. Got to be careful about people pleasing. That's a lot of power to give to someone. Now asterisk. Are there relationships where people in your life should have a say in some of the things that you do? Right? In a marriage, you go from I to we, from me to us, 
right? It's, you make decisions. I tell all my couples, you make decisions for the both of you now, right? And so there's going to be components of this where it's going to be important for you to consider someone else. If you're working on a group project, you can't just be like, hey, you're taking away my autonomy by telling me not to do it on this plant. Well, that doesn't exactly work that way because if we're doing uh, this project on horses, you doing a discourse on, I don't know, poison ivy is not going to help our project, right? Well, you're trying to make me a people pleaser. No, I'm trying to help you do the, the class project. You see what I'm saying? So there's moments in this where it's important to consider uh, what someone else is saying. But overall, if you live by that sword, you'll die by it. Sixth, difficulty setting boundaries. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Let me first say this. If you are setting boundaries with others before setting boundaries with yourself, you're out of line. You're out of line. If you don't set boundaries with, other, with yourself first, before you set boundaries with others, you're not even sure what your boundary actually is, right? So what does boundaries look like? Boundaries looks first like being able to identify your own personal needs, right? Your own personal needs. So for instance, maybe I don't like being lied to, right? Well, nobody does, right? But let's say it especially triggers me if you lie to me. I have to realize that, hey, that's an issue for me. And after I identify that it's an issue for me, I then can voice that it's an issue for me. Hey, I'd appreciate it if you were honest. Like, I want you to be honest anyway, but you really trigger me because of X, Y, and Z that happened before, and I'd rather you just do your best to be honest with me, or this isn't going to work, right? But if I don't identify that's a need in my own self, then it can show up later, like this. Like, me not identifying that's a boundary, and then they lie to me, and then I find out the hard way. We talked about triggers, remember that? People trigger you and you can't understand if it's a trigger, you won't know that it's triggering you until it triggers you. Unless you know the things that bother you up front and in advance. Does that make sense? So it, it, it requires a great deal of introspection uh, that you have to have in order to do that. So identifying your own boundaries, being able to, uh, to set those boundaries, but then being able to identify and respect the boundaries of someone else, right? So when I meet with my couples and we talk through this, this portion, I may ask them, okay, um, how good are you at setting at identifying your own boundaries? They'll say, well, I give myself a three. Okay, well, how good are you at setting boundaries? Well, I'm also a three. How good are you at respecting boundaries? A two. Ooh, that's gonna be an issue because what's gonna happen is you don't set good boundaries and you also don't respect boundaries. That's one side of the issue. What happens when the other person in the relationship also does not do well with identifying their own boundaries and also respecting others' boundaries? Then you're just going to be beating each other up all the time. See what I'm saying? But someone with codependency issues may struggle to set boundaries. Okay? Caretaking. Caretaking. Codependent individuals may assume a caretaking role. Constantly focusing on meeting the needs of others while neglecting their own well-being. It's kind of like when you're, in the, when you're in the airplane and they're giving you the instructions before takeoff. What do they tell you to do about your mask? Put on your own first before you put on the mask of anyone else. But it's just a baby. It's just a baby. I can't help. I, I need to put her mask on first. So what happens like the plane is descending at a rapid place and, pace and while you're putting the mask on the baby, you pass out. 
Guess who died? Both of y'all. Right? And I think as a lot of times what we do is we, we get into a place of trying to help others without helping ourselves. If you burn out, if you struggle, if you fall apart, you are zero help to anyone else. You have to prioritize you first. We talked about this before in relationships, right? That there's a level of egocentrism that's appropriate. Galatians 6, bear each other's burdens. But verse 5 says you have to bear your own burden, right? Husband loves your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, right? Husbands, love your wives as you love yourself. He that loves his a wife as he loves himself, why? Because he nourishes himself. He cherishes himself. So ought men to also love their wives, right? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. The second is like unto the first, that you will love your neighbor as yourself, the barometer that we have for loving others is contingent upon the natural view that we have for ourselves. So if I don't nourish and I don't cherish myself, my chances of nourishing and cherishing my wife significantly decrease, right? If I don't love God with all that I've got and love myself well, then I'm not going to love my neighbors either. Can we see how that's contingent upon a healthy view of self? We can't become caretakers if we are not in a place of being able to take care of ourselves first and here's what's happening it's a it's a fine line because what do we say about codependency codependency looks good all the time but it's not it's not if a parent is taking care of their child more than they are taking care of themselves that's a red flag but wait that's my baby i have to as a mother as a father you wouldn't you you don't understand no 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 no, no. there's no excuse because if you don't take care of self how can you take care of baby? How can you take care of partner? How can you take care of responsibilities? You can't do that. Pastor, what do you mean? Talk to me about the depressed parents that I talk to every week. Mm -hmm. The ones with the crippling depression that they can't get out of bed. Right? They haven't gotten out of bed. They haven't brushed their teeth in days. They haven't showered in days. They haven't eaten in days. So... Wait, wait, but where's the baby? Where, where's, where's the toddler at? Take a wild guess. Take a wild guess. Is that if they're in a position where it is so crippling that they can't get out of bed, chances are, now there are anecdotes, but chances are they're not helping anybody else either, including that baby. Pastor, what do you mean? Talk to me about the, the teenagers that I've dealt with who had to dress themselves and feed themselves and get their siblings to school because their parents were too hungover to get them ready for school, right? Or their anxiety was so bad they couldn't step outside or their depression was so terrible they couldn't get out of bed and the kids are having to fend for themselves. Pastor, you're projecting. No, those are the kids sitting in my counseling office. Is that everyone? No. But is it a danger for everyone? Absolutely. Gotta be careful. Caretaking. Number eight, fear of abandonment. This is often a deep fear of rejection and leading to a strong need for reassurance and constant connection. But wait, pastor, isn't this whole, isn't this two-part component of the series about abandonment? Yes. So what do we, what can we derive is that it becomes a loop. It becomes a loop. Abandonment can cause codependency, which can cause abandonment. It's a loop. It's a loop. 
Codependency will perpetuate further feelings of abandonment in unhealthy ways. Like a parent feeling abandoned by their child because that child is making a life for themselves and can no longer give that parent the attention that they want or need. That they want or need. It's an, it, codependency can look extremely clingy. Extremely clingy. All right? Got to be careful about that. Number nine, poor communication. Codependency can cause poor communication. Difficulty expressing needs, desires, and emotions can be common among codependent individuals, which may lead to passive, aggressive, or indirect communication styles. I want to give you really quickly what the four communication styles are. All right? So you're going to definitely probably want to wait for the notes and for the podcast because I know I'm giving you a ton of information. And I'm sorry, but I'm not. All right? <laughs> the first communication style is passive. Right? We talked about that a second ago. The passive person is the one who is anti-conflict by any means necessary. Right? What I like to call stage two is passive-aggressive. Right? So a passive person will, will try to abstain from conflict, right? Yes? Nod your head, yes? Yeah. <laughs> Passive-aggressive people, what happens with them is they want to avoid conflict, but they're hurt and it's seeping out. Pastor, what do you mean? They're stomping slamming doors, giving you an attitude, silent treatment, all of those other things are passive, little digs. Well, I mean, if you took out the trash, we'd have a better marriage. Whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, did they communicate their need in what they just said? Yes. But did they attack the problem at that point or the person? Uh-huh. And it looks like those little jabs that's meant to know that I'm hurt about this, but I haven't communicated this, or you're not listening, right? It's not always on the person. Sometimes they've tried to communicate it and they're not being heard, right? Um, but passive aggressive people are the ones who are hurting and they don't want conflict, but it shows up in other ways. The third is aggressive, right? This is what I like to call stage three. Now, Aggressive people are the ones who they, they try to avoid conflict. See, I believe that aggressive people are naturally passive people, right? In most cases. Some cases, things happen to them that make someone become aggressive right off the bat. We understand that, right? But most times than not, it's an involvement from a passive place. I didn't want conflict. I tried to avoid the conflict, but it's seeping out, and now I've had enough, right? And now their baseline is so tender that you breathe and it's a fight. Can you stop breathing so loud? You good? Right? And their, their, their fuse is extremely short. And so if that, if, that, if that fuse is extremely short, there is an underlying issue. Understand this. Anger is a secondary emotion most times. Which means that if someone is angry, there is usually an underlying emotion that is fueling the anger. Brother Kenny right here, that's my guy. Brother Kenny, I love you. I love Thank you for being a great friend. I really appreciate you. Right? I love Brother Kenny. Brother Kenny's a big dude. Right? And so anger happens by definition as if I am trying to walk across. Can I use you for object illustration? Thank you, my brother. I appreciate you. I love you very much. Thank you. Okay. So arms out like this. All right? Now, anger by definition means if I'm trying to get to the other side of the platform, but Brother Kenny is standing in my way, what will happen is that it's going to perpetuate anger in me. Why? Because the goal that I have is being obstructed. 
Make sense? If I'm trying to get to the other side of the stage, but he's not letting me, it's going to foster anger in me because he's obstructing my goal. So pastor, how does that look like practically? That looks like the fact that you are trying to be a good, a good communicator with your spouse, but he's not hearing you, right? And so if your goal is to communicate and get issues resolved, but you're not being heard, what is the natural emotion that will show up? Anger. anger. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you. <laughs> anger, right? It shows up in other ways. I, I use the illustration of a group project. I'm trying to get an A, and I'm doing my part, but my classmate is not doing their part, and it's going to affect my grade. And so if my goal is to get an A, but they're going to cause me to get a C because they're not doing their part, I will get... Because is my goal a C? My goal is a... Right. So that's showing up like that. So what you'll find out is those aggressive people who are just like, boom, wrath, it's deeper than that anger. And I tell my anger clients that we can treat the symptoms of anger. We can practice deep breathing. We can count to 10. We can work on taking a second to speak before you think, right? And there is some, and there is some, um, some scripture behind that, right? Let every man be slow, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath, right? Make no friends with an angry man, right? All of these other things. A soft answer turns away wrath. Tons of scripture, tons of it. But we would just be clipping branches. But if the root is not taken care of, the branches grow back. If you're not bearing on the branch, something is happening at the root. So if you are not naturally predisposed to anger, but you find yourself being angry a lot all of a sudden, baby, there is something else going on. So in a codependent person, y'all thought I forgot about the lesson, huh? In a codependent person, someone who struggles with control may be an angry person because if their goal is to be able to have their hands on the whole situation but they feel out of control because of the circumstances they may be an angry individual argumentative individual a combative individual if their goal is to be able to get validation like a parent trying to get validation from their child because they have codependency with the child but the child is trying to build a life for himself because he just turned 19 and he's in college i can't give all my time and attention to you dad i can't go fishing every week dad might get angry with that child and say you don't love me no dad you might be codependent are you angry with me are you angry about whatever void is here you see what i'm saying we got to be careful about that but the fourth communication style is assertive that's what everyone should strive to be every single one of us should strive to be i want to do a little exercise can i have everybody in the room bow your head and close your eyes who will say pastor x if i'm being transparent i'm the passive person i try to avoid conflict by any means necessary raise your hand okay thank you for your transparency avoiding conflict passive people second who will say pastor x I'm the passive aggressive person. I don't like conflict, but it has a tendency to seep out in my, in, in my relationships. I, I may be the stomper. I might freeze people out. I might, I might you know, say the passive aggressive or the, the little jabs. Okay, not as many hands, but I appreciate the ah, oh, there they go. All right, put them down. Who will say, Pastor, I'm more prone to be aggressive. My, my line is just, I'm just, it's just short. And I know that I have a tendency to just hit the, hit the fan quickly. All right, all right. You can put your hands down. You can look up. Thank you for being transparent and honest. I appreciate that. All right. I am, I am, I have gotten to a point and I really blame this counseling program because I had to do a lot of work on self before I could see my first client. 
and I had to do a wellness assessment that had to look at myself mentally, emotionally, physically, physiologically, and spiritually. And I realized that I had a lot of wounds. And I talked to you last week about how my attachment style is secure now, but it was anxious before, for a long time, right? And I was the passive aggressive person, not because I w didn't want to have conflict, but because I felt like I could not have conflict. But I'm a lot more of an assertive person now. And what is assertive? The assertive person is the person who can feel their feelings, but still remain objective, right? Yes, I'm upset, but I can still think clearly. Yes, I'm upset, but I can still communicate my needs and my wants, right, and my hurts. This is saying, hey, transparently, you did X, Y, and Z to hurt me, and, uh, and it hurt me. Um, can we talk about fixing this versus saying you're a big, fat bully, right? There's a difference. Right? Someone who is assertive can communicate their feelings without being emotional in their feelings. Does that make sense? So what I'm saying, I'm not saying don't feel your feelings or don't even don't have emotions. I'm saying that if your emotions drive your conflict, you're going to find that someone who responds in emotion will receive a response in emotion. And sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. True or false? False. false. Stick, my bones may heal, but some people will take your words with them to their grave. Y'all are paying attention. Careful. The good news is, is that much like pursuing a secure attachment style, we can all be able to pursue being able to be assertive. And um, we'll, we'll talk about this at, at another time, not in tonight's session, but a quick synopsis is this is the best way to work out of passive, passive aggressive and assertive is that when someone, when something happens, voice it. That's the best way, the quickest cliff note way that I can give you on how to work on this thing is if it bothers you, say it. There is no such thing as sensitive. Pastor, what you talking about? No, there's no such thing as sensitive and there's no such thing as overreacting. Pastor, what do you mean? Is that if it's important, if it's big enough to hurt you, it's enough. And some of y'all are like, what you talking about? Some people are just soft. This person is just soft. No, if it hurts them, it's valid. It's not about right and wrong. It's about positive and negative. So someone can respond negatively. But here's the truth. You might say, you being too soft. Is telling me that going to magically make me not feel that way anymore? You know what? You're being soft. You know what? I was being soft. See how strong I am now? You can't hurt me, baby. I'm rock solid. Thank you for that wake-up call. No, it's not how it works. Because guess what? You're a human being. Do you have a responsibility to respond right? Yes, you do. But check this out. This is free game. You ready? If you are trying to communicate your feelings with the intentions of changing behavior, you will die by that sword. When I confront someone, it's not because I want them to fix it. I mean, yes, they, I hope they do, but my goal is not for them to change their behavior. My goal is for me to be able to effectively communicate my thoughts and feelings. Because if I don't defend Xavier, no one defends Xavier. Make sense? And I use this example with my clients all the time is that there's a little, I should have bought my little baby Yoda I've been giving to my clients all week, right? My little Grogu. And I've, I've been making my clients hold it, right? Um, and and I, I use it to help them to represent themselves. 
And the external me, I could be like, man, look at me with my 90s shirt. I'm a cool guy. <laughs> what you said didn't hurt me. When I got passed over, it didn't bother me. I'm cool. Other side of the pillow, cool. I'm a cool guy. Look at my hair. I'm a cool guy. Okay? <laughs> the external me can put up this facade, but the internal me felt every jab. It broke my heart when I got passed over, right? It hurt my feelings when you didn't invite me or you rejected me in this area. And the only person that can console the internal me is the external me. So if the internal me is not protected by the external me, then the people that are outside in my relationships cannot support me the way that I need it. Because I have to defend me first. Galatians 5, 6, 5, you have to bear your own infirmities. And only then can you be able to fully take on people bearing it for you. Do your best, right? Poor communication. Demonstrating and identifying body language, struggling to be clear in their thoughts and feelings, and struggling to listen and understand instead of listening to respond. Man, I can give you a whole session on that, but we got to move on. Okay? Number 10, loss of identity. Loss of identity. Codependent individuals may lose touch with their own interests, hobbies, and personal goals as they become... Um, as they become um, I lost my spot. Overly focused on others. All right? So many people in this place struggle to know who they are apart from the individual they are codependent with. All right? They struggle to know who they are apart from the person they are codependent with. They may lack their own personal interests. They may lack their own knowledge about their own likes and dislikes. They may struggle to identify their own goals and forge their own futures because if that person is not present in their lives, then I don't have an identity. Got to be careful about it because I've been using the parent-child example a lot. Is that what happens if you've developed a codependency on your son, but now your son's an adult and he's off at college, and now you don't know what to do with yourself because your kid's out of the house? That happens with empty nesters all the time. I've gotten so accustomed to ha having my kids around and following my kids' schedules and, and doing what they demand with their lives is that when they're not doing it anymore, what do I have? I spent the last 20 years forging a life for my child and not enough of living life for myself. And you may say, Pastor, you don't understand. Oh, but I do. Oh, but I do. The easy thing is going to be for you to forge your life based on their own personal needs. And as a parent, should you be able to be available for your children? Yes or no? Yes. Physically available for your children? Yes or no? Monetarily available for your children? Yes or no? Emotionally available for your children? Yes or no? But if it's at the expense of yourself, you're out of line. You're out of line. Balance is so important. It is so important. So you might have to, you might have to say, you know what? I understand that you would like to play baseball this fall, but we just right now don't have it. And I'm sorry that that's our current experience, but we're just not going to be able to do it. But as your parent, you feel the fire burning inside you. And I don't want my kid to be disappointed or miss out on their experience. So I'm going to go into debt for it. Right? I'm going to take them to, base to baseball practice, but I'm going to be mad every day that I had to spend $300 this week on baseball gear. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why, why'd you do it? If you're going to treat your child like a burden for helping them out, oh, careful careful we have to be able to prioritize self 
so that not to the point where we are so where we're egocentric and all we think about is ourselves, but a healthy balance where I don't just consider my children, consider my spouse, consider my friends, but I also consider me. And that helps you to establish healthy boundaries. Okay? So really quick, I'm gonna speed this round. Alright? You said you're already fast. You're already fast. I need you to slow down, not go faster. <laughs> How to correct codependency. This is what you've been waiting for, right? All right, number one, therapy. <laughs> I'm a therapist, I have to plug it. I have to. Consider seeking therapy with a mental health professional experienced in treating codependency, asterisk. There are good Christian therapists. There are good pastors and church workers that have the skill set to help you with your needs, right? It's not so much about the credentials for me as it is about the ability to have the skill set to help you from, with a, from, with a, from a healthy perspective. You see what I'm saying? So if there is availability in your church or in your circle or in the ministry leadership that you're a part of right now, then please, by all means, take care of it. Therapy is expensive, right? But if you notice that the people that you're confiding in for help, and you've heard me say it, especially my clients know this, and there is one thing that I think really rivals therapy, and it's a good social support network, right? And so sometimes your social support network can be enough to, be co to, confide, in, to confide in, to talk with, and they may be able to help you to work through some things without having to go and pay a therapist to do so. But at the point where you are maxing out that relationship and you're not getting your needs met, consider professional help. 75% of people go to therapy not because they're schizophrenic and they need lithium you know, to handle their, their whatever's going on or an antipsychotic. 75% of people go to therapy for everyday issues of coping and functioning. 75%. You're not crazy because you need help figuring it out. Consider therapy. Number two, self-awareness. Develop self-awareness by understanding the patterns, behaviors, and emotions associated with codependency. Recognize your own needs and wants and boundaries. Oh, uh, I'm not talking to Kalea in this moment. I'm talking to my mom. I need to put mom in that category and deal with mom later. I'm going to talk to Kalea for Kalea. Love Kalea for Kalea. Not as a void filler or a hole plugger. And if I know that I have the tendency to use other people to fill wounds, then I can work hard to not do it, right? And deal with whatever the actual wound is, ex-person, you know, family member, friend, etc. Education. Educate yourself about codependency and its causes. This knowledge will help you gain insight into your own behaviors and the dynamics of codependent relationships. Listen to me. Social media is really weird at times, but you'd be shocked what Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube can give you, right? Be shocked. You'd be shocked. Google it. How do I overcome codependency? And there's a lot of free game out there, okay? Set boundaries. Learn to set clear boundaries in relationships. This involves recognizing and communicating your needs, saying no when necessary, and respecting the boundaries of others, which we talked about a second ago. Number five, self-care. Prioritize self-care activities that promote your physical, emotional, and mental well-being. Engage in activities that bring you joy, practice relaxation techniques, and develop time for hobbies and interests. You, you want to be able to work on your codependency and your attachment, you got to dedicate time to bettering yourself. All right? 
Dedicate time to bettering yourself. Number six, develop a support network. Surround yourself with supportive and understanding individuals. You may join support groups or meetings where you can connect with others who have similar experiences. You'd be shocked. COVID came with a lot of nasty stuff, but a huge thing that was, that was huge um, that came with COVID was the online ability for connectivity with others. And you'd be shocked that if you Googled codependency groups, you'll find a Zoom link from one that meets every Thursday at 7 p.m. You'll be shocked. There's, COVID came with making a lot of things more accessible for others. Okay. Um, number seven, practice assertiveness. This is what I was talking about if you're trying to develop a more secure attachment style or if you're working on being more of an assertive person. Learn assertiveness skills to express your thoughts, feelings, and needs effectively while respecting the rights and boundaries of others. Your rights stop where my rights begin. Okay? Remember that. Number eight, explore codependent patterns. Reflect on your past and current relationships to identify codependent patterns. Understand how these patterns developed and work toward changing them. Remember, if you're not bearing on the branch, something happened at the root. Okay? Number nine, challenge negative beliefs. Identify and challenge negative beliefs and thoughts that contribute to codependency. Replace them with healthier and more realistic beliefs about yourself and about your relationships. The truth is, before I ever said I do to Kalea, I was already eternally loved by the Father. I was already, before I loved him, he loved me first. When, when the world says that I'm no good, Jesus says that I'm to die for. Right? Establishing a good, healthy support network. And that's why in my therapeutic practice, I practice cognitive behavioral therapy, which, con which consists of at attacking negative, behavior negative thoughts and negative behaviors, reality therapy, confronting the lies with the truth, and mindfulness, being able to break those bad trains of thoughts, or negative trains of thoughts, to be able to establish more healthy patterns. And for me, I've seen in my, thera in my therapeutic uh, uh, relationships that those have been high ways where I've seen people ex exhibit a lot of change. It's confronting negative, con negative beliefs, which affect negative behaviors, to more positive and more realistic beliefs, and being able to break unhealthy trains of thoughts to be able to establish those core, those core beliefs and core behaviors. All right, and lastly, practice self-compassion. My clients will hear me say this till I'm blue in the face. Be nice to yourself. Be nice to yourself, show yourself some grace. You're a human being with thoughts and feelings and emotions. And sure, we don't always approach things the way that we'd like to, but it's important to recognize in ourselves that uh, that it takes time and we're all a work in progress. Justification was immediate, right? Just as if I've never sinned. But sanctification is a lifelong process. He that began a work in you will continue that work until it's finished, right? He's the author and finisher of our faith. And he began that good work and he promises to complete that work in you. Give yourself some grace. Give yourself some grace. So if you're someone who struggles with, with an insecure uh, uh, position, attachment, or you struggle with being passive or passive aggressive or aggressive, then there's work to do. But the good news is that the work is doable. The work is doable. 
I love being able to be a Christian and, be all, and also be a therapist because the great physician can outdo me a thousand times over. Pursue it in Jesus. But what I, love about, what I love about therapy is that it allows you to have practical components to spiritual, to spiritual concepts, right? Like for instance, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be careful for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Right? Take no thought for tomorrow, but take thought for today. For are sufficient are the evils of the day. Who by thinking about it can add one cubit to a stature? Right? All of those different things. So it's basically saying don't be anxious. Therapy helps me to put practical elements on how to do that. See what I'm saying? So the misconception is that therapeutic services are purely humanistic, and it's not. There are a lot of ways where it correlates really well. So strongly consider it. Yes, there's work for all of us to do. Even I, as a therapist, have work to do. But greater is he that is within me than he that is in the world. And I can have hope because I don't fight for the win. I fight from it. Dear Lord, thank you for this day and for your son and for the finished work on the cross. Thank you so much that you are a God who overcomes, who completes, who heals. That greater than any physician is the great physician. And so today we choose to walk in your victory, the victory that was done on Calvary. As your son died on the cross and rent the veil between us and you and we have free access to the Holy of Holies now. Thank you that you're an intentional God. I pray for the person in this room who is pursuing healing, that you would provide healing. Your word says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. God, your desire is for us to be whole in you. God, help us to walk in that. And we'll give you all the honor and glory for it all in advance. In Jesus' name we pray and we're thankful. Amen.